Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Father in heaven, we give thanks for this Lord's Day. We're thankful that we can teach and learn that these two things can come together, that you can bless both these events. So we pray for your blessing upon my teaching this morning and everybody else's learning, that we can uh, come together in, in our knowledge and love for you through this. I ask that this would prepare us for worship this morning and prepare us as we go home and love our families and love our neighbors. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okay, so again, we are, I am doing a class on the liturgical home. And so I'll just sort of recap real quick what I'm talking about. In terms of liturgy, the first thing to know is liturgy is not ordinary. Liturgy refers to something religious. And so the distinction I'm making is not that we can bring liturgy to our home and sort of just create a liturgy like that. Like the, the, there really is a difference between ritual and, and repetition and liturgy. The point I'm trying to make in this class is that God uses liturgy to train his children, to shape us. So he uses the worship, the corporate worship service to make us more like Christ. We don't do it the same way when we go home, but if it's good enough for God to shape us, there are principles that we can use from our corporate worship that we can take home and apply it in different ways. Sometimes it's very similar. Sometimes it's, we're just taking principles. So for instance, like next week, we'll talk about communion. Well, we don't do communion at home, but we can take principles of communion and apply them in the house. But the two things I want to talk about this week are going to be very close to what we do in worship. But before we get there, I do want to recap just real quick. Uh, covenant re- renewal worship. That's what we do here at, at, at Trinity. And it's a, so basically what covenant renewal worship is, is a biblically guided application of how to draw near to God. Worship is drawing near to God. And the perception is that that can just be whatever you want it to be. Well, we here at Trinity say, no, they're, they're actually, they're, there's biblical principles that guide us. There are certain things that are required for worship. And there, you can do this thoughtfully or you can do this randomly or without thought. So we try to be thoughtful. So we have a call to worship, confession, consecration, communion, and commissioning. And if you, wanna, if you weren't here two weeks ago, you can go online. I think it, the, at first, it's, it's just, a couple of people called me and said that it was not, like only the first 10 minutes were recorded. Jed fixed that. So you can go on now and listen to the whole thing. So if you want to follow up on that, you can go and listen to that, to that lesson. Um, but moving on from there, so the idea is that drawing near to God is where we are primarily nourished, corrected, taught, trained and equipped for service. And of course, what I'm doing is I'm taking that idea and applying it to our home. That's what we try to do in our homes. Church is where we learn who we are. We come to worship. That's where our identity is. That's how we should think of the home. We are part of the body of Christ. And similarly, we are part of a family when we go home. And I use the example of Romans 12, 1 through 2. We are to approach Jesus, we are, as a, we are sacrifices of praise. We are to give ourselves as a sacrifice of praise. And that leads to all of these um, characteristics. If you draw near to God, here's the result of that. And so that's what I'm trying to apply. And so what I did is I went through Romans 12 last week, beginning with what Paul begins with, come to worship and be conformed to his word. That way you can judge rightly and you go out into the world and it begins in your home. And so we talked, we talked about who is our neighbor um, and, and just the difference between the degree of influence that you have. God has given you a particular circumstance and for most people that is the family. So head of households, husbands and wives, um, children, siblings, 
parents, like that relationship is the greatest degree of influence that you have. Much more than your work, much more than your buddies that you, you know, hang out with. Your family is where the greatest amount of growth can occur. And that's the way God designed it, I believe. So, um, and then the final thing I want to bring up is, and this will come up later, but that, that creation act, you know, Jesus talks about how I did not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. And, the, and so people sometimes will say, well, look, the family doesn't matter because Jesus even said, I've come to pit brother against brother or fam, you know, father against son, mother against daughter. But the point of that is the context. He's talking about the old covenant. And the same way that God separated things in creation. So he separated light from dark and then created something new. He, he, he separates and creates something new. He separated the waters above from the waters below. He separated the land from the seas and then creates something new out of that. That's what's happening as we go into the new covenant. The old covenant is Israel. They have this relationship with God and they have rejected God. They have turned their backs on God. And so when Jesus comes and he says, I do not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword, he's creating what is the new covenant, new life. And so he's bringing families away. So you have a Israelite old covenant family and, you know, brother Amos converts to Christianity. Well, now he's coming into this new family. But that's not a principle that we carry over to, to, to this day. I mean, the principle is not every time you become a Christian, you're separating yourself from everybody else and, and joining. Like the, the idea now is the family, you raise your family this way. You, the people you have influence on, you can, you can create this Christian culture around you. It's not simply separating from it. it we're in a new context now. We're in the new covenant and the new covenant means that everywhere you touch and you take dominion, you're bringing, you, and again, degrees of influence, right? You can't just go into work and start baptizing everybody and say, okay, we're, but you can with your family. You can with people that are near to you. You can convince people. And that's the idea. Like we use our degree of influence to create this new covenant, this new world. That's what we get to participate in. So we come to worship and then we go home and do what God has just taught us to do and trained us to do and basically broke us down and put us back together to do. So with that in mind, I want to begin with the five parts of worship. Again, it's the call to worship, confession, consecration, communion, commissioning. And I'll get into all the details of that as we come to it. But the call to worship may seem a little obvious, you know, it's kind of like, okay, well, you know, obviously the call to worship, we got to come into worship. And so, you know, there's, it seems like the least important part of the five, but I would actually make an argument that's probably one of the most important parts. And so I want to spend a little bit of time on this, um, beginning with the idea of what, what is our identity as we, as Christians. So in the call to worship, who was called? Well, your family, in terms of the church, is set apart in terms of your baptism. When you are baptized, you take on a new name. You are no longer of the world. You are now Christian. You take on a Christian identity through your baptism. And you can get into a different argument about what baptism does. That's not the point. Regardless of whether you think it's simply symbolic or something really happens, your identity is tied to your baptism. That's one of the problems in our modern uh, evangelical world is that we have tied our identity to the moment you walked an aisle or the moment you said the sinner's prayer. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says to be baptized. That is your identity. So we come called to worship. We come to worship as baptized people. Um, your identity does not begin with your self-awareness or reasoning but it comes to you from outside yourself. Your identity is dependent on the relationship that gives you that identity. So it's not just that God says you're a, you know, you're a Christian now. It's, it's God says you're a Christian and I'm going to do this thing to you. And I'm going to form you in a certain way. So you have to come to me. And when you come to me, 
I'm going to do this for you. I've put you in this new world, this new relationship. I'm going to do this thing to you. And we get this. I'll just give a quick little um, philosophy history here. Essentially, we get the way that we think about ourselves from Descartes. And so, you know, Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. And that has had a profound impact on our society today. Now, when we should be fair to Descartes, because I don't think he thought about it in the same way we have turned it. Descartes is simply responding to what the medieval Christians said. So they, their, their motto was, I believe, I have faith so that I might understand. So they began, they began with this understanding, okay, I'm a Christian and I was, I'm a Christian so that I can, I can grow. So there is a sense where medieval Christians were thinking not corporately, but thinking individually. And so Descartes takes that and he goes to the next level with it. He said, no, actually my identity is because I can't be sure of anything else around me, but I can be sure of what I'm thinking. And so my identity is tied to my thought and, and um, what I think about these things, my, my um, awareness. And so what you get out of that is this, under, like our identity is tied to our self-awareness. Our identity is tied to individualism. Our identity is tied to our autonomy. And, you know, Descartes never would have guessed you know, like what that would have led to into a world where people are, you know, mutilating themselves so that they can become, you know, the opposite sex. I mean, he never would have thought about that, but that is, you can follow that trail all the way. It's a, it's a slippery slope that gains momentum, the, you know, the further we go to the point where we're now in this crazy world that really is simply born out of this understanding that I get to decide who I am. My identity I'm the chief. I'm the one that does that. Well, Rosenstock Husey was a philosopher who said, he, he responded to this by saying, I respond, although I will be changed. And what he said was, no, you don't get to, you're your identity. You're not who you are because you came up with it. You're who you are. And this is true for all of us. We're who we are because our parents started talking to us. Like we're born, they give us a name, they tickle us and they get, make baby sounds and they feed us, they train us. You know, we grow up in an environment, if, if, even if it's a bad environment, we grow up being taught that we are this person. And you can't get away from that. Remember there's a, um, the Olympic, was she a skier? Peekaboo Street. Remember her parents were so, you know, they were kind of, you know, very postmodern, and they're like, we're going to let our child choose her identity. And so when she was three or four, she, you know, she got to choose who she was, uh, peekaboo. But the fact is, is that the only reason she chose peekaboo is because her parents played peekaboo with her. So when they gave her the option to choose, she chose exactly what they trained her to do. So you can't get away from identity from someone else. Other people have a profound influence on who you are. Um, and so that's what Rosenstock QC is saying. Like we ought to just accept that and recognize that our relationships are formed by other people around us. And the fact is, is that's what, that's what our identity in Christ is. In John three, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, I mean, that's the whole conversation you have to be born again. And the analogy is true. Like sometimes talking about a new birth or being born again is, can be like Christianese and we sort of pass over it. But, the, but this is true. You begin at point A when you become a Christian and you move towards point Z. And along the way, you begin, whether you, whether you are a baby, whether you are a young, you know, you, you convert in adulthood, you begin in the Christian walk as a baby, and you progress forward. That's why it's called a new birth. And again, the, it's not a perfect like one-to-one. I mean, you, if, you're, if you convert as an adult, that doesn't mean that you can't speak or you can't think or, you know, but, but the idea is the same. You're beginning at point A and you're moving to point Z. And whether you, um, and of course, this is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. By grace are you saved through faith, which does not come from your own power, but is a gift of God. That's faith. Faith does not come, we don't, we don't 
dig down in our souls and create faith. Faith comes from God. So again, it's coming outside of us. Our identity comes from without. And because our identity begins with God's initiation, it doesn't make sense that the call to worship is only for those who can respond rationally. It is for all who are identified as a Christian and will be present. So, um, you know, and this applies to infants. It applies to even grown adults who don't have that same capacity. You know, so mentally handicapped are still called. So they come, they are brought. Matthew 19, 13 through 15. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belong the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Now, the context of this passage is the in in, uh, Matthew 19 before that is his teachings on divorce. So remember, the Pharisees come to him and they're trying to catch Jesus. And they said, is it lawful to divorce your wife? And then. Of course, Jesus says no, and he, what he does is he lays down what God said about marriage. And so the Pharisees are trying to catch him, and they said, well, Moses said it's okay to do this. And Jesus' response is, yes, because you're sinners, you have a hardened heart. And so God did create this you know, divorce. But what's really interesting about that is so the, the, the Pharisees are trying to catch Jesus, and he does not say this. He doesn't say, well... You chose to be married, so I guess you can choose to be divorced. That makes sense. He says, no, God created marriage, and this is what it looks like. Male, female, leave your spouse, you know, and, and then you're, you're joining to another, and you're required to do that. You know, like, obviously, there's, there's exceptions to the rule, but this is, like, you don't get to pick and choose. God created marriage. That's what you're supposed to do. And then later, the, uh, the disciples are like, well, you know, so maybe it's better that we don't get married. You know, we stay single because that sounds kind of tough. And Jesus, again, says, no, that's not the way that works. You don't get to choose that. Now, some people are set aside. A, a small minority, which is very hard, are chose, they, they, are, they can do that. But the rest of you, you don't get to choose the easy way out. God created this ordinance. So you do this, and it's going to be hard. But you have requirements because this is what God established, not you. Marriage is not about, I will choose to do this, and then I will choose to do this later if I want. No, God created it. You're required to stick to it. And, you know, and of course he did lay out, you know, obviously infidelity and such. There are, there, you know, it, but that's not the, really the point here. There are, uh, that can be another discussion down the road, but my point of what I want to make here is simply like even marriage, like th- these are not things that we choose. Like these are things that God has established. And then in light of that, the very next thing is people are bringing their children to Jesus and the disciples are like, yeah, they're kind of distracting or like, come on parents, like give Jesus a break. And he's like, no, in light of what I just said, you're doing the same thing again. You're picking and choosing. No, these people, these children are being brought to me. Let them come. Let them draw near to me. That's for such is the kingdom of heaven. This is a God thing. This is not a person thing. You don't get to decide. God has chosen this. They are to come to me. And um, what's interesting about that is that same word. You know, you, you may, I think in our translations it says, uh, the, uh, the, you know, there's this, the children are brought to Jesus and then Jesus says, let the little children come to me. And some people would look at that and go, well, look, so they're, they're supposed to come. So there's a, there's a choice by them, but that word, that translation doesn't really work. So the, so the same word is the same word that we talked about two weeks ago when I was going through Leviticus nine and showing the five parts of the worship. The very first one, the call to worship was Moses and Aaron were commanded to, to the people, draw near to the Lord. And that word is the same word. It says, come near to me so that I can heal you, so that I can, so I can bless you. So that's the same word that Jesus is talking about when he says, let the little children come to me. They're coming, which is, seems like a choice you make, right? 
That is counted toward people who in the previous verse are bringing their children to Jesus. Or bringing, yeah, so whether they're infants, whether whoever it is, your family, your household, you bring them to Jesus, that is coming to Jesus. So that's, um, that's not a... That's not a choice that you kind of can, everybody can pick and choose if they want to. If you're the, if you as a parent are bringing, you know, your spouse, you're bringing your family and we'll kind of get into this. And and it even goes further than that to some degree, um, our realm of influence in the household. But you make a decision as a house that this is what we will do. We are following Jesus. And part of that means we bring our people to Jesus. And sometimes you have to carry them to Jesus and sometimes they can come on their own, but that's incidental. That's not the point of coming is whether you can walk or not or make the decision. It's, it's a covenantal relationship. Um, so the main point of the call to worship is to understand that it is an obligation and a privilege based on your identity, not your preference. This is who you are. So this is what you do. And the things you do or the things that are done to you in worship are the things that make you into the person that your identity is now. So yes, you are an infant at the beginning, but God doesn't want you to remain an infant. He wants you to become a productive member of his kingdom. So in order to do that, you don't just you know, walk an aisle, say a prayer, and then go off over here and do your thing. You're supposed to draw into the community. And then God does particular things. And that's what I'm getting at. Like, so this is how we're to look at our family. And then we take some of these nuggets and apply them to what we do in the home. And one of the things that's interesting about what we do here at Trinity and this idea of creating a purposeful liturgy. And again, I'll apply this to the home. The reason why we want to be thoughtful about how we do things in our home is it helps us to, to stay in line. You know, the, one of the biggest issues in the church today is we have this hard time distinguishing between legalism and antinomianism, which is this idea that there is no rules. Like, it's a free-for-all. Like, Jesus loves me, so I can do whatever I want because I'm, I'm secure in that. And then there's the other side where it's like, well, we have to do everything exactly this way, and if you don't do it this way, then you're not doing it the right way. And there's, you know, the church does that, of course. You know, in a, in a bad liturgy actually does that. You, so like in the Catholic church, you go to a Catholic service and what you're going to get is there, you know, prayers to Mary and to the saints. And, and every week the Eucharist is a is is the sacrifice of Jesus over and over. So you're rehearsing and you're redoing this sacrifice. And what it does is it trains you to earn your salvation. But then you go to the happy, clappy, poppy, evangelical church who simply just does rock and roll music and feel-good sermons, and you really will learn that it doesn't matter what I do because I'm, I'm, I'm part of the club. Well, we want to stay in line. That's what our liturgy does at church, and that's why a strong household and thoughtfulness in the household keeps people from doing one or the other. You want to keep everybody... In this joyful, loving, as Doug Wilson says, loving the standard. You don't want to beat people with the standard. You want to train your family. And I'm not just saying kids. I mean, you want to train your family and those you have in your realm of influence to love the standard. So how does this translate into the home? So remember, the idea is not to replicate corporate worship at home. Again, corporate worship is distinctive from the home. And that's important. We do want to make sure we make that distinction. But what we want to do is recognize what God is teaching us in church, in our liturgy, and then understand why it's important and beneficial for us. Again, God decided that, hey, it's important for you to sing. Okay, let's think about that. Why is it important for us to sing? Can we replicate this in the home? And then we use the liturgy to guide us and help us make decisions. And there's different... So what the things I will bring up here are not the only way to do it. These are things that I, that I think there are some very strong things and, and there's creativity in the way that you do it. But the point is to try to learn the point of it. What are we trying to learn here? What does God think is important for us to become more like Christ? So how can I use that to help my wife or my husband or my children or the person that lives with us? So on and so forth. Um, so... 
First of all, let's think about this. We already talked about how do you become a member of the church. Well, how do you become a member of a family? Marriage, birth, adoption. And, and here you start to spread, you start to kind of, it, 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 it's not as clean cut, but there's still realms of influence. So legal adoption, fostering. Okay, now you're in a world where you have a strong degree of influence, but there, the state will still have some things to say about that. So the realm of influence shrinks slightly, but you're still in a really good position to make a difference and to train people. Maybe a tenant, an extended guest. So again, you don't have the same realm of influence as you do with your spouse or your children, but you still have influence. They're in your home. You can start making an influence and an impact in their life. Of course, I'm not going to get into this today. Again, another conversation down the road. But there's a reason why, like in Ephesians 5 and 6, it's not just husbands and wives and children, but he also brings in slaves. And the point there is not to have a conversation about what slavery is and all that, but the point is, as part of that household, there were requirements. As the master, your requirement is to do this thing for these people that you have authority over. And it's bringing them to worship, to train them the right way. They, they don't, once they come into your home, you're, they're now on your turf. And you have a say to a degree, to what they, you know, to differing degrees. So let's talk about identity in the home. Again, marriage, birth, adoption, fostering. Well, the first thing is to be aware of the roles and responsibilities that come with these created relationships. God looks at us through Christ. So our identity, God looks at a certain way. He doesn't, you know, our whole theology is based on the fact that we don't come to God and we're just, we're, we stay wretched people. You know, it's, it's, it's that, you know, we push back against this whole thing of, you know, the, the church will say, churches will say, you know, just come as you are. Well, yeah, come as you are so that you can be changed. It's not stay as you are. And that's one of the problems in the church today is we keep seeing is people, oh, I need to just my identity is in my sin and that's who I am. And so, you know, it's my cross to bear, my burden. No, nope, that's not the way that works. God, I seize you. If you were baptized, he sees you with a different identity than who you were. And that's the way we should start thinking about our homes. So in a marriage, husband and wife, um, whether it's a birth or legal adoption, you are a father and mother, a child, a sibling, a tenant, doesn't, and so the point I'm trying to make here is it's very easy for us, like the, like the broad evangel, evangelical church has done, to be casual, to simply look at that person in your home as the person that lives with you, as the person that is sharing your room. And, you know, yeah, sometimes we, yeah, this is, you know, you just kind of refer to them as their regular name. You know, it's like Denise. Hey, Denise. You know, it's it's. And, and there's nothing wrong with that per se, but the point is trying to come up with ways that remind you daily that this is not just another person in your home, like your coworker. This is your wife. This is your husband. And so even to the degree that pet names or even just referring to them as wife or your mother when you're talking to your children, your father, you know, we have friends that just call their 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 you know their parents by their first name, and it's like, what in the world, you, you know? And that's a modern thing that happens, but it really is beneficial for those identities to become solidified in the home. You are the mom, you are the dad, you are the sibling, you are the daughter, you are whatever the relationship is. Emphasize that in your home. And one of the reasons for this. That we, the, that we want to avoid. Um, and I think this, again, this is, could be a further converse, conversation. But I think my thought is that one of the reasons why the evangelical church has such a high rate of falling away. And again, kids grow up in the church. They go to college. They fall away. And the number is crazy. It's like 65, 70%. Well, one of the reasons I think is because their identity is so jacked up. I mean, they don't, they don't know who they are. I mean, they do know that they're a part of a church or maybe they've been baptized, but the, but the church doesn't treat their baptism seriously. And so what happens are babies are a distraction. Children go to children's church. Youth go to youth groups, small group divisions. You know, you have your, your you know, elderly singles 
or whatever, you know, like there's all these different groups. I mean, the church I grew up in, we had a motorcycle gang, you know, it was like the, the Jesus riders. And so all the people would show up in their leather and that's their group. That's who they were. They worshiped over here. So everybody kind of goes off in their different directions. And so people's identity gets tied to these other things and not to their baptism, not to their part of the body that where they worship together. And again, that's, that can be an issue in the home, right? If we start letting other people sort of make their own definitions of who they are, well, all of a sudden, they start seeing themselves apart from their family. They, they start seeing themselves as, well, I belong to the goth crowd over here. I'm not really part of my family anymore. You know, we, even in, in homeschooling circles, you know, Denise, like we, we were, Denise was teaching a uh, protocol event and trying to train kids how to get ready for their protocol event where it's, it's lots of manners and dress up and how do boys and girls treat each other. And so she said, well, these are things you can begin at home around the dinner table with your family. And literally every kid except for two were like, I don't eat with my family. Like, where are you? I, I go, you know, I eat on my own. I go in my room and shut the door. Like, I don't like my family. You know, this is homeschool, Christian homeschooling. So it really is not just what these people out there are doing. These are things that can affect even our community. And so you begin by your identity. You, may, you want your children to know who they are. You want your wife to know who she is in relation to you. You want your tenant to know who she is in relation to you. And I bring that up simply because, you know, we, we live in this world where the world wants your identity to be tied to something else. And not even, not church for sure. And even not your family. So even like I, the company I worked for for a while, and they talk about your family. We're going to have a lunch, and we're a family. I'm like, no, you're not my family. You're my coworkers. We're not family. But that's the way they wanted to treat us. And for single people, that's especially the case. You know, single people out there are being told, you don't need a family. You find your identity doing this. And so what we have done, for those that know Diana, I mean, our, we purposely thought, here's an opportunity to bring somebody that's not getting that into our home. And of course, it's, a, it's not the same thing as our kids. You know, we don't tell Diana what she has to do. But what we do is we say, we welcome you. We want you to be a part of a family. And obviously, it's not the same relationship as us and our children. But she comes. She doesn't just rent the, sto- the room out from us. She eats dinner with us every night. She helps make dinner every night. She does family worship with us. We sit around, we sing together. Like she is getting that experience. And it's not the same thing as my children or my wife, but there is a relationship there. And I think one of the things we can do as a church is recognize that. Like we have the ability to not just disciple and train our children in our family, but we actually have the ability to start reaching out to other people and say, this is what we're doing in our home. Come, come here and be a part of this. You need a family. One day God will give you a family, but right now, come be a part of this family. Instead of saying, oh, go be with your single friends over here. And that could be true. Of, I mean, we could sit here and think of a, many different ways that could play out. And again, you know, and talk about what that means in the Bible for slavery, but I want to move on. Um, so other ways to kind of emphasize um, identity Physical affection, being very purposeful. Darren talked about this, and, and Larson talked about this the last time about with boys and girls and the difference. But, you know, and of course, you're, you're, you're rough and tumble with your boys and kind of messing with them. And girls, you need to hug them a lot. But the point is the same. You need to be affectionate. Affection helps to cement this identity in the home. Um, People who don't want to commune every week, you know, people that make the argument about commute, you know, well, you know, it's, it's not special if you do it every single week. You know, they make that argument. But that's kind of the same argument. You know, it's, people would make that argument about why, you, you know, you wouldn't say, well, you know, my wife knows I love her. Why do I have to tell her that? You know, she ought to know. No, that would be foolish. But we do kind of slide into that habit if we're not careful. There can be a casualness where we will just forget to give hugs and we'll forget to tell people we love them because they're always around us. But that's wrong. The same way that infrequent communionists are wrong, they're wrong because this is meaningful. You want to do it regularly. And there is the truth. You can make it rote. You can come home every day and I love you and then go off to your study and isolate yourself from your family. And well, I tell her I love her. 
Well, obviously that's not the right way. You can be in a liturgical church who has meaningful liturgy and it be completely rote and dead and dry. So the, you do want to keep that joy and keep that understanding of this is, this is a relationship, a covenant to prevent that. Again, there's two ditches there, right? Um, and then finally also, so, you know, it's identity, it's physical affection. It's, um, what was the other one I said? Um, it's, uh, well, um, I, I lost my, I lost my place here. Um, but anyways, the next one I would say is training. It is good to train your children and one another spouses to respond properly with love, affection, and acceptance rather than assume that it's not meaningful if these things do not come without prompting. So what I'm saying is you may fall into the trap and the world says this a lot too. And even, even good people who maybe even visit our church and say, well, that they say, you know, they, they just all said a prayer together and that, you know, the Lord's prayer, that's not meaningful. Like it didn't come from the heart. Like it's only meaningful if it's spontaneous and comes from the heart. Well, no, that's not true. Like we, God has given us his word with a lot of strong, you know, we have 150 Psalms here. It would be foolish to say, okay, well, we got the idea, God. Well, we'll come over here and sing, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. No, he's given us good stuff that we can take home. And, and we're not limited to that, but it, it sets the foundation. So if you want to write a new hymn, don't write, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. Take the Psalms and say, well, let me create this beautiful new thing over here. So that's kind of the way that we do it in the home. Um, the point is not to just expect that your kids are going to respond immediately in the right way. You have to train them to do that. You have to do that with your marriage, too. You don't begin marriage automatically understanding the right way to love each other. You have to train one another. So we are trained to respond with joy and thanksgiving in our liturgy. And so we want to train our family to do the same thing. So in coming to worship, you know, the very beginning of the service is all about this. We come in and we sing a hymn. So we begin with singing. You know, we have an opening prayer. We have a call and response you know, lift up our hearts, you know, and, and we respond. So God is training us how to come to him with joy, how to come with him in the right response. That's what we should, we should take that into our homes. Husbands and wives, remind one another to be affectionate. And again, this is touchy, right? Because as a husband, sometimes you, if the wife says, hey, go hug your kids. And you're like, don't tell me, you know, come on. Like you're, you're telling me, you know, it's embarrassing or it's, No, like, don't be like that. Like, encourage each other and say, we want, I want you to be affectionate. Now's a good time to go hug. And the husband should respond and say, you're right. I'm not even thinking about that. I should go hug them right now. Use pet names. Refer to each other and children by their relationship to you. So, again, identity. Make a big deal about it. And and listen to each other. Remind one another. A loving, affectionate, joyful home makes up for a lot of other failings. And there will be many failings. Psalm 16 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what God wants us to think about our relationship with him. So we should imitate that. We should think about the way God wants us to think of him. And then we do that in our home. Delighting in each other, being affectionate, loving, quick to repent and forgive. These things offer stability and security. There will most likely be financial problems. There will be health problems in your, in your home. These are things you can't control all the time. But you can control the temper of your home. You can face trials with love. You can face trials with joy. You can face death and then hug each other and cry and lean on, you know, like there's, there's, there's ways to face these things in a way that emphasizes the cut, the relationship, the, the things, you know, in the same way that we come to Christ, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't keep us at a distance when we're going through hard things. He responds to us appropriately with love, with compassion. And it's hard for us to do that. So that's why we need to train each other when things are easy, right? 
So um, to, to build up the muscles for the hard stuff. Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, and then what he, he the final response, you know, in addition to that, he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, pure, whatever is lovely, commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the peace of God will be with you. So that's his promise to us. So the things that he gives us in worship, the things that God wants for his children, go home and practice those things. Do those things and cultivate these things because it won't come naturally. You have to practice it. And so that's called a worship. Let me um, get something to drink. And then move to the next part, which is confession. I want to hit this. We have about 10, 12 minutes left. But I think this, I'd like to get through this today. Why do we confess? Okay, why is that part of what God wants us to do in worship? Well, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So why do we confess according to this verse? So that we can have forgiveness, so that we can be cleansed. James 5, 13 through 16 says, if any, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So why do we confess? Forgiveness, cleansing, healing. Um, it's really interesting. The least known of the Inklings was a doctor. His name was Havard. And one time, uh, and he was actually the most consistent member. I think he's the one that stayed in the Inklings the longest. So some of them would come and go, but he was kind of there for the most. And he never really wrote anything. He was just kind of the local, he was C.S. Lewis's doctor, Tolkien's doctor. But um, Tolkien went to him one time with this, you know, he was sick and not feeling well. And, and, and Havard's diagnosis of him was, you need to go confess your sins. And Tolkien was kind of like, come on, man. You know, like, you know, surely it's something else. And he's like, no, go confess your sins first and then come back. And then that was like Tolkien came back healthy. And he was like, yeah, he goes, you were right. He goes, I got some stuff off my chest and confessed my sins and I feel much better. So, um, now, Proverbs twenty-eight, thirteen: Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So, why do we confess? Forgiveness, cleansing, healing, success. And again, not necessarily success in the way the world says it, but if you want to succeed in your life and the things that matter to God, if you want to shape your life or have your life shaped according to what God wants... That's success. And if you want that kind of success, confess your sins. And then finally, so that you may obtain mercy, mercy, so that you can be forgiven the way that you, so that you can forgive others in the same way. So all these things are given by God. And so after we come, when God calls us and, be, and before we ascend, so the, the pattern of corporate worship is we are called, we come in, but the first thing we do is we confess our sins, right? Before we hear the sermon before we commune, before we give our tithes and offerings, the first thing we do is we confess our sins. That's the pattern. So what, how can we apply that? Now, some people would argue and they say, well, aren't we already forgiven? Like, why do we have to go through the motions? Well, yes, we are forgiven. First Peter 2.24 says this, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So yes, Christ has died for us. Our sins are forgiven. So why must we confess? Well, for one reason, obedience. Acts 17.30 says, The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Okay, so we confess because of obedience. 
um, this idea of repenting, this, uh, this word, repent, metanaho, uh, eho, means to turn away, to change your mind. It's a reversal. It's the way we should think of it. It's not simply just saying you're sorry. It's actually turning and going the opposite direction. In Scripture, we see men and women repenting and following Jesus. But it is a mistake to think that this initial repentance is the only one that is required. So that's what happens. People look and they read the Scripture and they say, well, look at this. You know, like that's, that's when you repent, when you become a Christian. So you repent and then that's it. And then you're good to go. But that's, that's not the right way to look at that. A proper understanding of repentance, similar to the call of worship, helps us avoid, again, these two ditches of legalism and antinomianism. So again, repentance, doing regular repentance does not earn our salvation. So we have to be careful of that. Being in Christ is our salvation. But then if you do the one-time repentance thing and think you're good to go for the rest of your life, um, what we do is we ignore the fact that we are sinners, still sinners, even now, sitting right here, we're sinners who need to be regularly restored to a right relationship with God. And this kind of brings us into the role of the family again. This is why it's such a, you know, God uses the family to make these analogies all the time. You know, the family, not, you know, the family is a good in and of itself. God created the family for our benefit, created marriage for our benefit. But there's also such a great analogy there. You don't, you know, you're married and you're in a covenantal relationship. But then let's say you get annoyed with your wife and you snap at her and say something mean. And all of a sudden that relationship is broken, right? But you're, re- you're not unmarried all of a sudden. You're in a relationship. You're still covenantally bound. So you're in this relationship, but there's tension. And it, like Nate Bargazzi makes the joke about when you're in a fight with your wife and then sometimes you accidentally come down the hallway at the same time and it's kind of like this, oh, how, you know, it's good to see you. you know, you're just, there, there, there's a, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to get in your way here, you know, or, oh, you're watching TV, let me, I'll, I'll just go in the other room. And so you're still in a marriage, but there's a tension there. It needs to be restored. And the way you restore that is through repenting. Repenting and quick to forgiveness. Um, many of the serious relationships that we see and even experience are the result of small sins building up over time and not given the appropriate restoration that's required. We should strive for quick repentance and quick re- forgiveness because this is how our Father in Heaven deals with us. Not only does He promise to forgive us when we repent, which is what I read earlier, but the practice of confession as part of the weekly service, you know, when we come to worship every week, teaches us that it is a regular part of our life. It's as intrinsic to our lives as eating and sleeping. Confessing our sins and repenting, should, should, we should develop, we should train ourselves to think that in the same way we have to eat to survive, we have to confess and forgive one another to survive. Of course, it's not natural to do this. We are prideful, selfish, bitter, self-righteous. Therefore, we must discipline ourselves and our households appropriately. And this also brings us to the idea of absolution. And this is, you know, not only do we need to confess our sins, we need to hear that we are forgiven. We need a formal release from guilt. That's what absolution is. Formal release of guilt, obligation, or punishment. And in terms of what we do every Sunday, it's also a declaration of forgiveness of sins. We need to hear that. When I counsel men who don't go to the church that I'm going to, you know, don't go to our church, that's one of the first things I ask them. Do you confess your sins? And they'll say, oh yeah, I know I'm a sinner. I, I'm, I'm, I feel bad about what I did. No, but do you confess your sins? And it's usually this, like, they don't get what I'm saying because they just don't do it. I was like, no, you have to actually confess your sins, not just feel like it. And then the other question I says, do you hear that God loves you? That he forgi- oh, I know Jesus loves me. I know I'm a Christian. No, but do you hear, when you confess your sins, do you hear that, you are spe- that God loves you and has forgiven you of your sins? And that's a big deal, I think. I mean, we should take that into our homes and understand this. We need to hear this. Your children need to hear this. Your wife, husband needs to hear not just the at the confession, but the forgiveness part. And there are two aspects of forgiving. Forgiveness when sinned against, 
So in this case, you've sinned against somebody or somebody sinned against you and you need to say, I forgive you. And this heals the breach between two people. But then there's also the declaration that God forgives you as well, according to his promises. And this implies then that asking God to forgive you should be a regular part of practice, the practice of repentance. So it's not just asking the other person you offended. You need to come to God, too. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll skip the, because we're short on time, so I won't go into all the different examples. But there is a sense like, for instance, you're driving down the road. You're, so your family needs to see this. So if you're driving down the road and someone cuts you off and you, you know, yell at them and shake your fist at them. Again, you don't need to track them down. You know, pull them over, and I just need to, you know, apologize for what I just did. But if your kid, like, it's beneficial for you to say, you know what, I was wrong, I apologize, God, will you forgive me? But especially if your wife or kids are in the car, like, do, make a habit of that. Even in silly, what seems to be silly things, make a habit of saying, I was wrong, I shouldn't have responded that way. Will you forgive me? Because I did it in front of you. And they may, you know, they may not even understand that, but you're, you're developing a attitude in the home that their father, their mother confesses their sins immediately when it happens and they see that it makes a difference. Um, so I'll skip these. So I had a, I had a number of examples here. Maybe I'll get, I'll come back next week, but, um, um, you know, practice makes perfect parents every time. Well, first of all, obviously, the first thing is bring your kids to church. Bring your family to church. Make church a priority. Be here every week. I think we know that. We'll skip to the next one. Practice makes perfect, too. You know, this is why in my own family worship time, I include confessing and forgiving. So I want to train my kids to do it when it happens. I want my wife and I to do it when it happens. But also do it generally. I mean, that's what happens in worship. Like, we're not getting up in front of everybody and confessing our private sins to everybody. We just kind of do it corporately. And, but what it's doing is it's training. You know, God knows what we've done and what we haven't done. And so that's the point of confession. And we could make the mistake of saying, well, he already knows. We don't need to do it. No, he wants us to confess. And we do it generally in service. And I also do it generally in the home. I make that part of what we do in family worship. I don't make my kids sit there and tell them what, you know, like explain, well, how do you think you sin today? No, it's just a general, it's, it's training. It's not, it's not about dealing with every single sin right there. It's the training of it so that when the time comes, they need to confess. They already, it's already a habit in the home. Um, and there's different things. I'll, I'll skip this part um, about some of the things you could do with that. But um, parents make a concerted effort to quickly repent to your spouse, to your children, to anyone else, but especially when your family is watching. Um, and this includes like inanimate objects. You kick the, you know, guys, you kick the dog or something or, or the, uh, the table, you know, make a point to say, you know, <laughs> that you were wrong. You know, let people see that in your home. Parents, take the time to teach your children how to repent. And again, the point is not that they immediately, like, well, they don't really mean it if I train them to do it. No, you're training them how to repent. So you may not get the emotion you think ought to come with repentance, but that will come later. That will come later. You just train them on what to do. Teach them to do it. Um, and then, of course, in, in um, discipline, I want to definitely get this, you know, there's one theologian calls it that he says, grab them by their baptisms. And this is the idea that don't question their salvation when they sin. That's not what Paul did to the Corinthians. And they did some heinous stuff, right? The Corinthians were doing some awful things. Paul doesn't write to them and say, I don't know. Y'all really saved. you know, you need to check yourself. He says, brothers, you're baptized. Act like it. That's what we need to do with our kids. Train your kids, you know, examples, you know, they sin, you sit down with them and take the time to go through this ritual with them. They're, Sweetie, who are you? I'm a Christian. Okay, is this how a Christian acts? No. So then what should you do then? I should repent. You know, that's the process of training your kids there. Not just a quick, you know, helicopter or swat them on the, on the butt and then just say, do better. You know, take the time when they're little to train them through. The, and it does take time. It, it's, it's difficult to do that. Um, I don't have time to do this, but I, here's a good catechism. You know, this is Rich Lust catechism down in Birmingham. This is what we use. And it begins 
not like the other catechisms. This one begins with, it's called, I belong to God. So the first question is, who are you? I'm a child of God. What, what does it mean to be a child of God? It means that I belong to him and he loves me. And so we go through that catechism with the kids to train them that this is their identity. So when they sin, I say, who are you? Well, I'm a child of God. Okay, does a child of God hit their sister? No. So that's the way that we use discipline to train. And um, uh, again, I, I just want to emphasize that you're not aiming for perfection. The point is not, like, perfection is not sinlessness in the Bible. Perfection, when they talks about the Bible, when the Bible says be perfect, when it says that Jacob was perfect or it says people were perfect, you know, David is a man after God's own heart, not because, and David did some awful things. It's because he responded rightly. So the goal is not sinlessness. The goal is proper response. So you know your child's on the right path, not because they don't ever sin. You know your child is on the right path. You're on the right path yourself when you confess your sins and you repent. That's what perfection is in terms of the Bible. Um, as far as discipline when it comes to these things, you know, Doug Wilson has a great point. There was one no in the garden and a thousand yeses. Do not have too many rules, but strictly enforce the ones you do have. Disrespect, lying, acting out in anger. And the way he puts it, I love it. He says, put the money in the bank when they're little. If you want to cash the checks when they're older and trust them and be able to say, okay, you can go to the movie with your friends because I trust you. But what happens is the opposite. We sort of let our kids run wild because it's difficult. I mean, you have to do it all the time. You, if you're going to discipline this way, that could take up a good chunk of time in your home. Sitting your child down, going through the process, having them repent, having them repent to the person they sinned against, having them pray, whatever it may be. So we sort of neglect that. But then when the kids are older and they're sort of sowing their wild oats a little bit because they weren't trained when they were younger, then we put the hammer down. No, you can't go out with your friends. I don't trust you. And We want to do the opposite. We want to do the hard work when they're young so that when they're older, we can say, my daughter loves Jesus. And I trust her like she's she's made good friends. She's done all the things I've trained her to do. I can trust her to go do this thing. You know, that's that's the pattern we want to do. And then also, finally, I'll end with this. Remind them of how quickly God forgives and loves them and do the same. Mimic this. Be quick to love and forgive them. In the in in the practice of confessing and repenting, make the, the absolution, make the, the restoration the big part of it. Hug your kids when they do what they're, even if they don't feel like they mean it, even if you don't feel like they meant it or they didn't express it the way you wanted, make a big deal out of the restoration. Because that's what Christ does for us. I mean, we come to Christ, we confess our sins, and he gives us a meal. He brings us into his presence and sits us down and feeds us, loves on us. That's what worship is. That's the way we should mimic that in the home. So, um, Be affectionate. Have them equate forgiveness with hugs, smiles, and peace. So, all right. Well, we'll end there. I think we have about eight minutes to worship. We went over.
Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.